podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Morning, church. It's a privilege to be with you all today. Today's scripture reading is from the New Testament Gospel of Luke. We're going to begin reading in chapter 17, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for your revealed word. We pray now that the same Holy Spirit that authored these words would now be over our hearts, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would shine the truth that is revealed in these words into our hearts. Give us the eyes that see you, the ears that hear you. Give us hearts that will respond with faith, love, and obedience to your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. This last summer, my family and I became very loyal fans to the Amarillo Sod Poodles. And they're still in it, by the grace of God. They, they might have a chance to win and keep on going um, as they're in the playoff journey right now. And I view it as very much an act of God's providence that my first ever sabbatical coincided with the inaugural season of the Amarillo Sod Poodles. That meant that my family and I got to see a lot of baseball, and we enjoyed it. And I have to say, it's been quite the pleasure to be able to see professional baseball in Amarillo, Texas. And if you're not up to speed on these things, the Amarillo Sod Poodles are actually a part of the the major league system. They they are an affiliate. They are the double-A affiliate to the San Diego Padres. And that's kind of an amazing thing, right? That means that whenever you're in double A, that means that you're essentially right on the cusp of making it into the majors, that you are at the point in your career that you're about to enter into this dream that you've had ever since you were playing baseball in Little League. And in fact, it's actually been kind of amazing. I think as to date, there's about nine guys that started their season in Amarillo, Texas, that are now San Diego Padres. And that's an amazing thing to behold and to be able to watch. But the one thing I've walked away from this summer with, as I've watched a lot of baseball games, is when you're watching professional baseball, essentially what you're watching are men who have made a mastery of the very basics of baseball. 
And sure, they can do some extraordinary things. These are guys that can throw crazy curveballs. They can throw fastballs that are faster than 100 miles an hour. I saw a guy do that this summer, actually. You can see guys that are able to hit a home run that goes over the walls and outside of the park and into the parking lot. But essentially, more than anything else, you're looking at a group of men who got really good at playing catch. You're looking at a group of men who got really good at just being able to take a bat and to be able to hit a ball. It's, it's nothing more than just a mastery of, of those basic techniques. And in fact, a few days ago, my wife took my youngest son, Simon Peter, in downtown Amarillo, and they happened to walk by the stadium. And there's this visible place on Buchanan Street where you can watch the Sod Poodles do batting practice. And there is Owen Miller, a professional baseball player, an infielder for the Sod Poodles. And you know what he's doing? He's hitting a baseball off of a tee. And what you see right before any game starts is these guys playing catch. And I think it's an amazing thing because they understand that to be able to pursue their goal of arriving at the show, of going to San Diego, of being able to make it into the major leagues themselves, it takes a mastery of these things that they can practice every single day. And Christianity, too, has a goal. We have this upward call of God that we are seeking every single day, that we're striving for the prize, and that prize is eternity with Jesus. It is this great goal that we are to desire above everything else. And lately in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been teaching on that topic. He's talked about heaven and hell and what it means to live in light of eternity. But today, he's going to keep that theme, but he's going to make a very practical turn with it. He's going to talk about how his disciples are called to live in light of eternity, but in the practical arena of everyday relationships. In other words, if we are to truly live in light of eternity, that it doesn't look like some form of advanced spiritual calculus. It looks like loving your neighbor well. It looks like truly being able to enter into a relational space with fellow believers in such a way that reflects that we really do believe in the eternal gospel that we claim to believe in. And so the things that Jesus is going to talk about today, you're going to have the opportunity to practice them every single day of your life. But just because they're every day does not mean that they're not important because, in fact, they are internally important. Because if you think about it, your relationships with fellow believers are one of the few things that you get to take from this life into the next one. And so today, we're going to look at a few commands that Jesus gives us as we live in light of eternity. Number one, we're going to look at, in light of eternity, that we're called to be considerate. Number two, that in light of eternity, we're called to be gracious. Number three, that in light of eternity, we are called to be humble. So point number one, in light of eternity, be considerate. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, the very first of his 95 thesis says this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, will that the whole life of believers should be repentance. That we are called to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. That we are called to seek holiness in our everyday life. That it is an integral part of our Christianity. However, this text shows us that our call towards holiness... Our call to repent from sin and to turn towards God is not something that we do just for our own individual spirituality. But this is something that we do to serve one another, to love one another, that the way we live our lives has this capacity to either help or hurt other people in their relationship with God. And so it provokes this question, are we truly living our lives in such a way 
that are helping other people in the relationship with God, or are we living our lives in such a way that we're hurting people in their faith toward God? And Jesus shows us that this is no small matter. Look at the first few verses. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, it really is impossible to live in a world that is fractured by sin and not experience temptation. But Jesus' people, people that that follow Jesus, that are his disciples, they are called to live in a self-aware way, a considerate way of other people to make sure that we are not the source of another believer's temptation. Woe to the one through whom they come. Now, what does that word woe mean? If you grew up in West Texas or you grew up watching Western movies, you probably think woe is something that you say to a horse to get it to settle down. But in biblical nomenclature, it's actually a very technical term. It's, it's actually a prophetic term that Old Testament prophets would use as they speak to God's people. See, in the Old Testament, God had redeemed and rescued a nation to be his set-aside, holy, chosen people. That nation was Israel. And God made a covenant with Israel. And if Israel was to obey the covenant, they would receive covenant blessings from God. If they were to disobey and to break that covenant, they would receive curses. And, And so when they began to break the covenant, God would send forth a representative, a type of divine representative that would speak on his behalf to the people of God. And so God would send people like Isaiah or Amos, and they would speak on God's behalf, and and they would call people to repentance. They would call the people of God to faithfulness to the covenant. And so they would say, guys, you're sinning, watch out. They would give a word of warning that if they did not repent, there would be judgment that would come. There would be consequences for their sin. But when things got so bad that there was no longer really any hope for repentance, instead of a word of warning, the prophet would give a word of woe. So a word of woe means certain judgment. It means that the verdict has been reached, that the person that is on trial has been found guilty, and that a sentence is being passed, and that that punishment is now coming. So when Jesus is saying, woe to you, if you're a person through whom temptation comes. This is a very, very serious reality indeed. He goes on to say in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. It's actually a pretty graphic image. This image of the millstone was something that was so heavy that it took a a donkey to be able to move the thing. If this thing were tied around your neck and you were thrown into a lake, you were having a very bad day. It's not something that you're going to have the opportunity to come back from, but Jesus is going to go so far to say that that is actually the preferred option to the eternal judgment that one would have if they were to cause one of Christ's little ones to sin. That it is a fierce judgment, but fierce is the love that Christ has for his little ones. So who are the little ones in our life? Well, when you look at that phrase, the little ones in biblical literature, it can typically mean kids. It can mean children. It can even mean our own children, but it means something more than that. It can also refer to young believers, people that are immature in their faith. And so, essentially, that phrase, little one, means anyone who has a still-forming and vulnerable faith in God. And in this way, Jesus is calling every Christian believer, every Christian parent, and especially every Christian leader 
to be considerate in the way that they live their lives. That every single month, I have the pleasure and the privilege of meeting with other Amarillo senior pastors, and we pray together for our city. We pray for one another's churches. We pray for the kingdom of God, um, which we're all a part of as we're seeking to do ministry and co-laboring beside one another in the city. And one of the things that we pray for every single month is we plead before the Lord, Lord, don't let any of us do something that would bring dishonor to your name. Don't let any of us do something that would cause people to stumble away from Jesus. Because the the consequences are very severe. That despite this radical culture of individualism that we live in in America, that no man really is an island. We're connected to one another. And our words and our actions to one another have a capacity to ripple through eternity. Point number two. In light of eternity, be gracious. Look at verses three and four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If you read the teachings of Jesus Christ, you read throughout the Gospels, you will discover very quickly that repentance is very important to him. In fact, when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer and he teaches us how to pray on a daily basis, one of the, the key phrases, one of the key clauses that we are to pray every single day is forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Isn't it fascinating that if you really study Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, that there seems to be this relationship between our capacity to be forgiven and our capacity to forgive. That we are not able to receive the gift of grace with fists that are clenched in bitterness, but that we are to have open hands that are as willing to give away grace as they are able to receive it. Because if you're a Christian, what you believe the depths of your soul is that you are a forgiven person and you are called to forgive even your enemies. But even as I say this, I want to make sure you understand what forgiveness is and what it's not. Forgiveness is not saying the way that I was wronged, I I have to now acknowledge that the person who wronged me was in the right, that it was my fault that I was sinned against. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not denying that someone sinned against you or minimizing their sin towards you. It's not drawing healthy boundaries Um, with people that have a habit of wounding you over and over again. It's not saying, well, a crime has been committed and I'm not going to report it because I'm going to be a Christian that forgives. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a refusal to stand in the position of God over another soul. When you're sinned against, there is this need for justice that is created. There is a debt that is created. And when you truly forgive, you are saying, Instead of trying to go out and create my own vengeance and my own justice by holding hatred against this other person, I am going to lay my case before the Lord because he is the perfect judge. He is my justice. He is my vindication. He is the one who will make all things right. Forgiveness is a command that God gives us, not because he wants us simply to be nice people. Forgiveness is freedom, and unforgiveness is bondage. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and wanting your enemy to get sick instead of you. But just because forgiveness is freedom doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, it's, it's very difficult. For this reason, the call to forgive 
in this text is revealed to be rooted in faith. It's not something that's rooted in willpower. It's not something that's rooted in goodwill. When Jesus brings forth this command to be this radically gracious, the apostles ask for faith. They say to the Lord, increase our faith, in verse 5. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The power to forgive flows from a faith that believes that God is good, that God is just, that God has the power to be our justice, that he is the God who has experienced the very worst of the evil of this world, and that he has the power to one day bring that evil to an end, that he is a just God, that we can bring our pain to him, that we can rest in him and trust that he is the God who will bring forth our righteousness as the dawn and our justice as the noonday sun, that he is our vindication, that grace is our freedom. And the good news is that even just a little bit of faith has the power to overcome the darkness and bitterness of our own hearts. So God might be challenging you on this Sunday morning to forgive someone in your heart that you are harboring bitterness against. And if you feel like that's impossible, maybe the prayer of your heart today needs to be, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because I truly believe in my heart that that is a prayer that God wants to answer, because he desires freedom for his children. Point number three, in light of eternity, be humble before the Lord. In Jesus' day and age, there were these large farms. It was a primarily agrarian society. These farms were operated by a staff of people who doubled as farmhands in the day, but house servants in the evening. They worked in the field all day long, and then when they would come in, it was their responsibility to be able to attend to the needs of their boss, to be able to provide meals, and to be able to do chores around the house as well. And it would be unthinkable for a servant like this to come in from the fields and feel somehow entitled to receive a meal and rest before the master. So too, Jesus is making a connection here. He is saying we should not expect personal glory and acclaim for any work of righteousness that we do. Before the God who's provided everything that is good in our life, we are but unworthy servants. Now, part of us might push back against this because if we're just servants, isn't that somewhat offensive to us? Does that mean that we're not valued by God? Quite the contrary. The New Testament teaches us that God valued us so much that he sent his only son to die for us so that all who would believe in him would have the gift of eternal life. The the Bible values us so much that we are described as adopted children of God, that we are a people of his own possession. It's how valuable you are to God. So what does it mean that we are but servants? It means that there is no work that we could ever do that could possibly put God in our debt means that even our righteous deeds are ultimately rooted in and empowered by God's grace. It means that every single crown in heaven belongs to Jesus. That he gets all the glory. That no matter how much you might mature as a Christian, that you're never to graduate beyond being a servant of the living God. And you, know, want, to know, you want to know why I know that? Because the apostles themselves primarily saw themselves, they saw their identity as servants of the living God. Let's look at a few examples. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 
set apart for the gospel of God. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes and the dispersions. Greetings. Second Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This is the apostles who are speaking. These are men who, for the most part, walked with Jesus. They saw Jesus. That These are men who have done miracles in the name of Jesus and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wrote the word of God. But before they even see themselves as apostles... They primarily see themselves as servants. And if they saw themselves this way, I think so should we. That in light of a God who is more gracious and kind and powerful than we could ever imagine, that the only right posture that we could possibly have before him is humility. Now, I think humility is one of those words, by the way, that is very misunderstood by a lot of people. Humility is not self-humiliation. It's not self-deprecation and groveling. It's not being chronically insecure, thinking that you are the lowest of the low. Now, true humility is a view of self that is neither too high nor too low. It is a way of life wherein our thoughts of self are simply outshone by the overwhelming light of God's glory and goodness. Humility is not making ourselves smaller than we are. Humility is understanding God for how big he truly is. This is what we're called to do in light of eternity, in our relationships with one another, to be considerate, to be gracious, to be humble. They are good commands, they are true commands, but these are not easy commands to obey. And our only hope of being able to imitate the cross is the power of the cross itself. That we look to Jesus. He's not a divine tyrant who is issuing these commands just because he wants us to jump through some hoops. That this is a God who stepped out of the glory of heaven and put on human flesh. And that he actually himself lived the life that we are called to live. That he is the one who lived the perfect life for the sake of his little ones. He is the one who forgave his enemies even as those enemies are placing him onto a cross. That he is the one who, though he is the rightful master of the universe, took on the form of a servant for the sake of our redemption. So when we are imitating this life, what we are doing is we are imaging Christ himself to a world that needs to see Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that You've not just purchased our redemption on the cross and through your resurrection. But you have invited us into an entirely new way of being human. That you've poured out your spirit upon us so that we can love others in the way that you have loved us. So Lord, I pray that today that you would provoke our hearts to the type of life that you have called us to live. Help us to love one another. Help us to see that when we pursue you and when we live our lives, that it's not just something that we're doing for our own sake, but that it is something that has the capacity to affect others. It can help them. It can hurt them. Help us to be a gracious people. And where we lack faith to be gracious and forgiving, God, would you give us that faith? And Lord Jesus, I pray by your mercy that we would be able to see such a glorious vision of who you are that we would be humbled before it. Not that we would think so lowly of ourselves and hate ourselves, but that we would seek you so much and that we would see you so much in our lives that every other thought, including thought of self, would melt away. So Lord, help us to be that people. Help us to be a people that are known for our love for one another. And as we love one another, let the world know that we are your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.